This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. I'm so excited to tell you a bit about today's sponsor, Music Masters Collective. They're a nonprofit organization that produces unique music events, providing opportunities for fans and artists to meet and collaborate in an inspired and creative atmosphere. Every week, Music Masters Collective hosts different events, all with the opportunity to learn from world-class musicians like Bill Frizzell, Kurt Rosenwinkel, Julian Lodge, Mark Rabot, Wayne Krantz, Oteil Burbridge, the Milk Carton Kids, and so many more. At an event like Alternative Guitar Summit Camp happening this August, you can expect in-depth workshops with guitar masters, once-in-a-lifetime performances, the opportunity to play alongside your favorite musicians, and a lot of fun. You'll leave this event packed full of wisdom and with a whole community of musicians to create with. This all-inclusive week in the Catskills Mountains of Upstate New York is guaranteed to be magical. Scholarships are available, but spots are extremely limited. So visit www.alternativeguitarsummitcamp.com backslash inside to learn more. Greetings, everyone. This is Chris Pandolfi from the infamous String Dusters. You may also know me as the host of the podcast Inside the Musician's Brain. And today, I'm here to let you know about Factors, delicious, ready-to-eat meals that make eating better every day super easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. And you'll have over 35 different options a week to choose from. That includes keto, calorie smart, vegan, veggie, and more. I had a few great factor meals last week, and they are so quick to prepare, two minutes each. And this is like really good food, restaurant quality food. And the plans are really flexible too, which is huge. So if you want to check it out, head to factormeals.com slash musiciansbrain50 and use code musiciansbrain50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while your subscription is active. That's code musiciansbrain50 at factormeals.com. Greetings, friends, and welcome back to Inside the Musician's Brain. I'm your host, Chris Pandolfi, and this is episode 12 of the podcast. We've got a lot of great stuff teed up for today, including a full-length interview a little later on with the incredible Sarah Jarose. She put out a record last year called World on the Ground that I thought was absolutely amazing. And it was great to hang and catch up with Sarah. We've been crossing paths with her since she was a youngster. And boy, has her career taken off. Amazing to see all the incredible things that she is doing. So stick around for that. For those of you who tuned into the last episode, episode 11, I got into looking at how all the innovation and evolution that's happening during this extended break from touring could potentially change up how we think about a career in music. And that's a conversation that's being had far and wide. But it kind of left me wondering how the experience has been for some of these amazing prolific streamers out there. So I'm continuing on with that theme today. I did a little bit of research and I reached out to a bunch of my 
talented friends, not just the streamers, but also sort of the alternative content creators, anyone who's found a new outlet over this past year just to see how the experience has been, whether they think that will continue on into the future. But maybe most importantly, this intro is just a chance to share some of this awesome content that I'm seeing and to share what other people have been into and just to shine a light on all the interesting and cool new creation that's been happening over the past year. So stick around, we're gonna get into all of that. Really quick, Inside the Musician's Brain is brought to you by Osiris Media and Americana Vibes. And we have some great sponsors on board this season, including Diderio, maker of amazing strings for all the acoustic instruments. I haven't had anything but Diderio on my banjo for years, and they keep upping their game. They've got an amazing new line of strings called the XT strings. That's what I'm using on my banjo now. These strings are reliable, they sound great, they don't break, and they last. So when you're getting on stage night after night, or even if you're just picking a ton at home, these new XT strings sound great and last forever. And I can't say enough good things about Diderio. These guys have supported the string dusters like you would not believe for years. Inside the Musician's Brain is also brought to you by another company that I can get behind from personal experience, EMG makers of really high quality pickups for acoustic and electric instruments. Banjo players, if you're looking to amplify your banjo, I really recommend the EMG pickups. That's what I've been using for years. And also a great company, family owned and operated since the 70s, all made in the USA. And they've just been great to work with. So high praise for EMG, check them out for all your pickup needs. All right, let's do a little spotlight on all the innovative content creators of the last year or so. Last episode, I was looking at how this whole crazy situation could change how we think about careers in music, potentially make musicians less beholden to the road. It's a big topic that is on a lot of people's minds. Which of these innovations will stick around? How is the experience for streamers, for fans? So I reached out to a few artists who have been keeping busy in the recent past, and I also solicited some information via social media. Thank you all so much for your responses, and you can follow me on Twitter or Instagram. I'm easy to find to get in on the conversation if you are not already. And I learned a ton. This was a very interesting exercise. Quick note, there is no way I could cover all of the amazing content creators out there. This is just the stuff that crossed my radar screen, some of the suggestions again that came in, mostly music that's based in and around the Roots world. And I think that the creators that got the most attention were the ones who streamed with the best quality, the most consistency, the most fan engagement. And you'll have some interesting new streams to check out. There's some really great stuff going on out there. So here we go with some of the streamers who have really been making waves here recently. First up is my man Keller Williams. Keller Seller has been on the air for 60 streams since mid-March. Perfect outlet for Keller, and I love how much joy he brings to the music. He's got his three stations, looping, guitars, keyboard. It's just like his solo show and big community aspect, lots of requests. He's got two more streams coming up in February, and those are on Stage It. Tim Bloom from the Mother Hips, he's been on almost every Friday at 6 p.m. for 45 weeks. He's been on Facebook Live. I clicked on his link, and there he is floating on this dock on a beautiful day 
in the Bay Area, and he mixes up the locations. He really brings his recording studio expertise to the table, which is huge. And like I heard from a lot of people, this has been a meaningful part of the career during this time of no touring and will likely continue if the appetite is there. Chris Jacobs has been on every Tuesday since March, 44 total streams. Big fan of Chris. The music sounds awesome. Tons of requests, lots of engagement. And that stream has been on Facebook Live. My good friends, Della May, love this band, always have. They've been really consistent with two streams, Sunday mornings at 9.30 a.m., that's Celia's stream, and then Monday nights at 8 p.m. Eastern, Avril and Kimber rock out. I've watched. It's awesome. Also, Facebook Live. They've raised some money for charity, kept their fans engaged. Now, one stream that was a little more under the radar but really deserves a shout-out is David Greer's stream via Nashville Tune Stream on Facebook. He's got an incredible group of A-list pickers. Stuart Duncan, Corey Walker, Casey Campbell, Dennis Crouch. These guys are like the best Bluegrass has to offer, and they've been on every week since April of last year. Epic pickers. You got to check that one out. All right. Once again, no way I can cover everything that's going on out there. But for what I did cover, the streaming award goes to the undisputed king of consistency in the era of modern music streams is Josh Daniel, who has been on the air every single day since March 15th of last year. And he's getting a lot of press right now. He really deserves it. He's made a lot of people happy. He's made a lot of money for charity, over $50,000. He hit number eight on Polestar's top 50 streamers of 2020, and now he's got people traveling in from out of state to see him broadcast on his front lawn. So just an amazing story, and there's a great example of someone reinventing themselves completely during a time that is pretty universally perceived as really challenging for live musicians. So check out Josh's stream. Check out all those streams. Really, really quality stuff. Now, those are all essentially solo or smaller acts who are streaming from their home base on a regular basis, but there are a number of artists out there who were streaming with a twist, creating some really cool and unique content. For example, my good friend Andy Thorne from Leftover Salmon brought a number of really talented and also high-profile musicians to perform on his deck in his backyard in Boulder. Really cool community aspect to this one, too, and the motto was Tiny Deck, Big Deck Energy. Nice one there, Thorne. I think it's safe to say that these will continue after live touring resumes. Holly Bowling did a really cool thing that I do not think would have happened if it wasn't for quarantine. She did 11 streams from these amazing, beautiful, inspiring places. Highlights included Yosemite and the Salt Flats, and the Mastered Audio is just about to hit Bandcamp from those. Travis Book from the infamous String Dusters, the Travis Book Happy Hour, which I have been attending in some form or another for the last 16 years of my life, always entertaining. And he's got musical guests, a lot of great banter. Check that out. Shout out to my man Sam Bush, bluegrass legend, who had some great Instagram collaborations, jamming with Sam that featured Billy Strings, Tim O'Brien, Jerry Douglas, Edgar Meyer, the list goes on. Corey Wong has been cranking out just unreal content on social media. Check that guy out. A lot of mentions for Andy Frasco and all the insane, amazing stuff he does, the lip sync videos, the world-saving shit show, 
And shout out to my man, Tyler Grant, who had a really cool series of bluegrass play along videos where you could jam along with him while he was rocking on the acoustic guitar. He's one of the best. As far as bands go, saw a ton of mentions for Goose with all their innovative stuff. They were my guest on the last episode of the podcast. They had the bingo tour. They had a drive-in tour, amazing Twitch stream from Rockefeller Center. And also saw a lot of mentions for Billy Strings, who was one of the first guys I saw to package these big streaming and drive-in tours like normal tours with merch and VIP packages, etc. So a lot of cool stuff going on there. Now, I have to mention this guy, Mark Rebier. Have you all checked this cat out? He is insane and amazing and has blown up during quarantine with these amazing shows on YouTube, raised a ton of money for charity, and really take advantage of this time. And he is just fun. Talk about bringing the joy to music. Check that guy out. Sturgill Simpson challenged his fans. If they raised enough money for charity, he would make a bluegrass record, and he did. How cool is that? And the record is killer. And then, of course, tons of mentions for Trey Anastasio from Fish, the Beacon Jams, Eight weeks of really varied programming, different lineups, 150 songs, no repeats. And here's the kicker, over a million dollars raised for the Divided Sky Fund to help those affected by addiction. And I've got to say, everything Trey does on that front is incredibly heartfelt. Huge props to him doing such a great thing there. And even more impressive when you think about the fact that he could probably just be sitting home hanging out right now, but he's bringing a lot of joy and doing a lot of good things. So those are some of the standout innovators of the last year to make sure to check them all out. And it was fun and insightful to catch up with a few of them. And here are some of the things that I learned. One thing that I heard very consistently from all of these artists is that this outlet really gave them something to prepare for and keep on their game, keep their chops up, keep their artistic juices flowing. And that was a really challenging thing for me during quarantine was not just losing the show and the gratification of being on stage, but the need to be prepared. You know, That's like the mission of a touring musician's life is always being ready mentally, physically to get on stage. And when shows went away, that went away. And a lot of these alternative outlets really gave artists an opportunity to stay on their game and even keep upping their game, which is cool. Another thing that I heard that was great was just that these alternative forms of expression really add a layer of fan engagement that's not necessarily possible at a live event. So tons of requests, seeing the chat element, of the streams. Keller said he loved it because he didn't have to worry about writing a set list. It was all requests. Of course, streaming gives you a chance to reach people far and wide that you wouldn't necessarily be able to reach via travel. And that's a pretty cool thing. Another point that I think is interesting and worth mentioning after looking at all of this is that streaming is not for everyone. It really suits certain types of acts really well. And when I think about the last year and what I've been up to, I never set out to be a solo artist. So I've been working a lot more in the recording studio and also just trying to live life. I've heard from a few musicians too that they haven't done much over the past year. And that is cool too, just sort of chilling out, resetting, taking a break from the career. And then of course, the million dollar question, 
how much of this activity will continue after touring resumes. And it's really a mixed bag. For some, it definitely will continue. They dig it. It's a meaningful form of expression. And it's also a meaningful part of their career and their income. It is indisputable that musicians are, like I said on the last episode of the podcast, developing skills that will come into play down the line. And that's a really cool thing. But perhaps this innovation arc is just starting and we'll have to see where it goes. But something I heard from everyone is that we all just can't wait to get back out there and play in front of live crowds again. To quote my man Billy Strings, when it comes to the energy of a live audience, quote, I feed on that shit like a fucking hyena is what Billy had to say. So we're going to leave it there. Thanks again to everyone I talked to. Thanks for all the great responses on social media. Okay, onward to my interview with the amazing Sarah Jarose. Love her record that came out last year, World on the Ground, so much. Check it out ASAP. Here we go. Johnny's on the back porch drinking red wine. He knows that it could be the very last time. He raises the glass up to his lips and wonders. Okay, it's my great honor to introduce our guest today on Inside the Musician's Brain. She is an amazing young artist who I've had the great pleasure of collaborating with and also just watching your career unfold from a pretty young age. You may know her from her work under her own name or collaborations like I'm With Her and also Live From Here with Chris Thiele. Sarah Jarose, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, such an honor just to catch up and see how you're doing. It's it's been a while. It has. It's it's actually just making my day to see a friendly face. <laughs> like, haven't haven't gotten to do a lot of that <laughs> recently. Likewise. You know? So let's talk about the current situation. And it goes without saying that. The music world and touring musicians and artists of all stripes have been really deeply affected. And, you know, there are challenges and so much adversity, but there's also a lot of innovation going on. And I think a lot of artists are taking this time to figure out sort of where things are headed for them and adjusting and trying to innovate. So, Fill us in. How how are you doing? How are you taking this on? What's what's it been like for you? Um, it's been a bit of a roller coaster, to be honest. I I especially early on, um, when there were just so many unknowns about how long it was gonna sort of drag on for, I think there was it was hard to accept initially because there was still this sense of there like wasn't a finality about it. Like there was a sense of like, okay, my summer gigs got canceled, but maybe we'll be back in August. And okay, August gigs got canceled. Maybe we'll be back in the fall. Like that, that sort of process of the dominoes falling slowly made it really made those first like four or five months really difficult. Um, Just the unknown of it all. The unknown. I'm I'm such a planner, and you know, as musicians, most of the time we know our schedule way in advance, and so it's just, you know, for all of us right now, it's completely disorienting to not be able to plan and to not know, um, and just so many guessing games and all that. But 
You know, I have to say I really struggled with it initially and especially, you know, with the timing of my record coming out and um, I actually never even got the chance to announce my summer tour that I had booked and and planned um, because it all got it, it was actually crazy. Like even the announcement of the record was sort of I think I announced it the week after things went into lockdown. It was like things started getting crazy, like around March 13th. And then I think I announced my record on March 24th um, mm-hmm. because even at that time, I remember remember weighing the the pros and cons with my management and all that like well maybe we'll be back in the summer and it's supposed to come out June 5th so let's just stay on track and you know put it out and in retrospect I'm still really glad that I put it out on time I mean it it definitely was not ideal circumstances to to kind of I feel like a lot of stuff that like, you know, press things that sort of were confirmed sort of got lost in the mix of um, just all the news that, you know, is maybe more important right now, but also just that that was hard to kind of accept for a while. But um, for sure. um, Yeah. Ultimately, at the end of the day, I'm so glad that I stayed on track and released it because it's still you know, be, especially because I can't be out there playing shows. It's it's like the way that I can contribute to the world right now. And it, it was this finished product. And I, I was just like, OK, well, at least I got to finish it. So I'm going to put it out and, and hopefully it brings people a little comfort right now. Yeah. And it was more than just the pandemic. And there were all of these social issues that were coming to the foreground. And I remember trading some texts with you back around that time because I had a sort of similar situation and announcing a new project and wondering if it was really the right time. Mm -hmm. But I think you're spot on in saying that the world needs this new music as much as much now as ever. So I think uh, I think you made the right call and the new record is great. We're going to get to talking about that um, here in a minute. But what else have you done in this time to stay busy and keep the music rolling, keep your fan base engaged, and even just for yourself, you know, to to keep things going? And, you know, the music really feeds us. And in a time when we don't have our community, it's almost maybe more important to keep that going. So how have you stayed connected with fans and just kept the creativity rolling. It it took a while for me to figure out what a good balance was because, you know, there was this rush, you know, back in March and April, there was this rush to just create content, content, content and videos and videos. And I, I felt like, you know, we, a lot of musicians had this simultaneous um, realization of like, okay, we have to figure out, at least for me, I'm, I'm not someone... Like you've got this killer studio set up, it looks like, and I'm not someone who had any real natural knack for like this microphone, <laughs> this simple <laughs> microphone, you know, it's like I had to learn how to set it up and do all that. And and that was a huge learning curve initially. So so before, um, before it all got going, you didn't like have any real home recording set up going? Not at all. Okay. No. And I, I actually, you know... 
I was fortunate that when things were looking like they were going to lock down, I flew here to Nashville um, to stay with my boyfriend, Jeff, and he had all this stuff. So had I been on my own, actually, like I, I own like it's hilarious, like as a professional touring musician, like I own no professional recording gear. (laughs) And so, you know, like I was using his microphone and his gear and just like figuring out how to make it work. And, And that was really tough, like initially, because Um, just wrapping my head around all that. It was such a learning curve. And it also was because it was unclear how long it was going to go on. It was like, how much time should I invest into, into this learning curve and how long am I going to be having to do this? But that's been a silver lining for sure. Like getting much more comfortable with being able to do recordings from home. And I've, I've been doing some, a lot of overdubs for people's projects and, um, And, you know, so after that initial kind of shock of getting used to the amount of video content, I, I feel like the thing that really pulled me through and, and was a way for me to engage with my fans, but also just brought me a lot of comfort was at the end of July, I started doing a weekly cover series on Instagram and YouTube. And it was honestly just, I had done one live stream concert um, in the beginning of July, like kind of a month after the record came out. And that was, that went super well, but like I, I sort of had mixed feelings about the whole live stream thing, just, just figuring it out and wanting the quality to be good. And, and I, I do feel really proud of how the quality of that live stream turned out, but I think it was just, I was finding it so weird to not like almost very, very anxious about just staring into the screen. I know what you mean. Such like a, while playing music, such a and, different form of expression than what we're used to performing yeah. with all that energy front and center. Yeah, exactly. And being able to see your audience and kind of connect and, and mostly the thing that, that I've found to be so strange about it is just the lead up, like the, you know, normally when you're in a venue and you're about to walk on stage, you're, there's just the feeling of the space and there's the other musicians that you're playing with and you're kind of interacting with them and you can hear the rumble of the audience and maybe the house music playing. And it's so, it was such a strange transition to just walk from the bedroom or the living room and try to get into that headspace mm-hmm. of being, okay, now I'm performing I can't see anyone that I'm playing to. And and so that, that honestly, if I'm being, if I'm being honest, that was a real challenge initially kind of, kind of to get over. But again, like I think just the thing that really was like a turning point for me was that cover series and, and just trying to, to give my more than anything, give myself a musical goal to work towards every week Mm -hmm. and kind of just, because there's no, um, there's no real sense of structure in this time. Uh, it was just nice to kind of have that, that weekly goal. And I honestly, when I started it, I didn't, I didn't know how long I was going to do it. I was, I was like, maybe it'll just be one video, maybe two. And then it, it wound up going on for 10 weeks. And, um, and it just, it, it really was so gratifying on a creative level and also as a way to connect with fans. I mean, it seemed like people really, 
really enjoy it, enjoyed it. They said that they looked forward to Thursdays at 10 a.m. You know, it, it was something to look forward to for, for all of us. Um, and, and, and that really pulled me through. And if, if you guys haven't seen Sarah's cover of the week, it's all on your Instagram. And, yep. and YouTube. And YouTube. And such a cool selection of songs, like everything from U2 to Billie Eilish, Crowded House. So... I assume you just sort of took that on week by week and chose stuff that had influenced you or were some of those songs brand new to you? Like, how did that work out? It was, I definitely was choosing the songs week by week. Mm -hmm. I I always sort of have a running list of songs that I'd like to cover, that I love, that maybe I'd like to figure out how to cover. So I had, you know, I actually had that a list of covers going back in the spring when I thought I was going to be on tour all summer and, you know, thinking of covers that would be fun to work up for the road. Um, cause I was going to be playing with a new band and just playing all this new music from the record. So that was kind of how that list started. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was kind of a mix of it, all songs that I've been obsessed with either more recently or for a long time. I mean, songs like the Peter Rowan tune, um, before the streets were paved and then Martha Scanlon's Raven. I mean, I've been singing those songs since I was like 12 years old. And, but I realized I never had a kind of a good recorded version of them, um, anywhere on the internet. So those were fun to kind of like dig back into and rediscover and make new again for myself. And then there were songs like the big thief song, cattails. I loved that record UFOF and, I always like her pattern on the 12 string guitar. I just always heard from the first time I heard that, I was like, I really think that that could lay out on Clawhammer banjo and in a supernatural way, like almost in the sense of like, it could have been written on the banjo. Cool. <laughs> um, so just stuff like that. And, um, but again, like kind of week by week, zeroing in on just songs that I loved and wanted to work up. So what about the streaming thing? Like, do you see yourself doing more of that? Because, you know, the reality is none of us are getting back on the road here anytime soon. Mm -hmm. And I know you said the cover series sort of wrapped up. So are you planning more streaming or other things to kind of keep people engaged for the, for the coming months? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure yet. I, I think that I, at this point, it's looking like I probably won't do a, another stream, live stream before the end of the year. Um, I, I do, I have been working on this project, a, a brand new original song. Um, I'm not sure when this podcast is going to air, but it's going to be for NPR Morning Edition. They've, they've been doing um, a NPR Morning Edition song project where they've reached cool. out to different musicians. And so that's going to be coming out next week, actually, right before Thanksgiving. Um, and so that, you know, that's been like a project and that's something that's going to be coming out new music for people to listen to kind of through the end of the year. And then honestly, it's just been such a, <laughs> such a crazy time that I, I think I'm now that I wrapped up the cover series and that I'm, I have this new song coming out, um, I'm going to sort of step away from things and sort of reorient, especially knowing now that this is going to drag on for a little while. And I'm excited to kind of start next year off on a, on a blank page and hopefully plan some more live streams and, and sort of get more of a game plan going 
in a reoriented mindset. Right. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't know that I'll do another live stream before the end of the year. And part of that is because I have been doing so many, um, videos and, you know, the cover series and my live stream was mostly solo and I'm not in the same place as my band. And I think that's, that's another part of it. That's been tricky to navigate is like, I, I wrote this record more than any of my records with the idea of like, this is really band oriented music. And so it's been really interesting to have to work all of it up for a solo setting. Um, I get it. You know, it's one yeah. of the big limiting factors of the whole pandemic and quarantine is, is your band all in the same place? You know, and yeah. it's really interesting to see certain bands that have the ability to get together, create music and, you know, do that safely are really at an advantage over mm -hmm. bands like the String Dusters. We've got three guys in Colorado. We got two guys on the East Coast. So we really had to make moves to kind of get in the same place for a couple of weeks, pack it all in. And now we're all spread out again. And we're not even sure when we're going to see each other again. So, you know, while there are things that we can do, remote recording and kind of writing songs and looking toward the future, it's a huge advantage right now for bands and, you know, artists that are in the same place as the people that they play with. It's like, man, they can do so much more and potentially take advantage of this time in certain mm -hmm. ways that the rest of us can't. Totally, totally. Yeah, it's it's kind of a interesting hurdle. So I think with that in mind, I like what I would love to do is a live stream with my band and like sometime next year, figure out a safe way that we can all get in the same place together um, and and make that happen. And, and so now is that the band on world on the ground specifically or is that it's a band that's just sort of designed to to recreate that music? Yeah, the world on the ground was almost exclusively John and myself okay. recording everything. Um, and so this this was a band that I had sort of um, I literally did an audition with with one of them um, like the day before lockdown. It, it was all I was like kind of getting it all dialed in like that week in the second week of March. Um but yeah, my my good buddies, uh, Mike Robinson, who you know, yeah. um, on guitar and um, pedal steel, and Dave Speranza on bass, and my friend John Fadham on drums. And so it was going to be my first time touring with drums, which I was really excited about, you know, because this record was kind of the first record that I wrote with drums in mind. Yeah. Like it, I've had percussion and some drums on a couple tracks here and there on older records, but it was never something that like while I was writing the tunes, I heard it in my head. And this was like the opposite of that. I, every song I wrote on this record, I, I was like, I'm hearing, hearing the percussion. I'm kind of basing the, the grooves and everything around the percussion. And, um, but John Leventhal and, um, John Leventhal played basically all the drums on the record. Okay. And then also, um, this guy, Sean Pelton, who's an incredible drummer played on two of the tracks. So, okay. Cool. Well, yeah. while we're talking about it, let's let's mm -hmm. let's dig a little bit more into World on the Ground. Incredible new record. Yeah. Right. And thank you. Um, I guess that's your fifth record under your own name, right? It is. Yeah. So, take us through the arc of how a record like this comes about. Are you 
writing the songs in the run-up to the record, or are you sort of always writing and collecting songs? And then at what point during that writing process does sort of a bigger vision of this collection of songs and an album come to mind? Like, how does that arc lay out for you? It was really different for me this time around than my previous four solo records. I I had gone in, you know, and part of it might have been because on my previous, on the first three especially, I was still in school. (laughs) And so I was always recording just whenever I could make it work, fit it into my, my schedule, um, outside of touring and going to school. Um, so I would show up the, all the, the first four records I made with Gary Pachosa showed up with my 12 songs or whatever, ready to go, kind of had the arrangements in my head. Um, and, and was very particular about, things going into it and not, you know, I mean, Gary and I would always collaborate and he would have production ideas. And it was a very, like our, our vibe was it, we co-produced those records. So it was super collaborative in that way, but I definitely was much more particular on the front end of things, kind of having ideas and wanting to execute those ideas. Whereas this time I wanted to be much more open at the beginning of the process and not sort of close things off um, from the get go. I think mostly because I had made this decision to ask John Leventhal to produce the record. And the biggest difference there is that he's a musician. Sure. You know, Gary, Gary's not actually playing with me. He's, he's an engineer. And so I was really excited to actually get to collaborate with the producer on a musical level and also in a writing um, capacity. Okay, so um, so was John, John Leventhal, by the way, incredible producer, Blind Boys of Alabama, Sean Colvin, Rodney Crowell, Roseanne Cash, all kinds of other great artists. So was he in on the writing process with you? He was, yeah, on on four songs we wrote together. Okay. But but even... Outside of that, so so going back to your previous question, I because I wanted to be much more open, I really only came in, I, when I asked him if he would produce the record, I played, I think I had four songs, um, pretty mostly well done and a little bit of room to, to grow, but um, I, I knew, I had heard that he liked to be a part of the writing process um, as a producer. And so I didn't want to show up with all these finished songs and just sort of be like, here they are, like, just record them. You know, I wanted to leave things open and and have room for him to, um, to influence my writing process. And he, so even the songs that he didn't wind up actually co-writing with me, he was the one that sort of encouraged me from day one to, not necessarily always write in like an inward looking way or or write about my inner monologue um, and try to be more of a storyteller within my songs. So break that down for us a little more. So you feel like on previous records, because I read in an interview with you that for a long time, co-writing was kind of a a foreign thing to you. And I think you mm-hmm. credited, I think it was Jed Hughes with yeah. a, an, an early co-write that really sort of opened your eyes. And then obviously on to I'm With Her with mm-hmm. Sarah Watkins and Aoife O'Donovan. And you guys have a very collaborative thing going on. So there was 
an earlier iteration of songwriting that you felt like was more personal, more inward, as you say, and then on this new record, it was a shift towards something different. What take us inside that that whole thing? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if it's I'm an only child, and so I don't know if it's like related going way back to just when I first started playing tunes in my room alone and started writing when I was 12 or 13. Um, and you know, so that was such a almost sacred zone. Uh -huh. And it was, it, that was the way that it went all through from the time that I started when I was 12, like all through my teens, um, and into the beginning of college. And so it was really, it was very personal and that was kind of the way that I got into writing. That was my way in. And, and also, you know, I had witnessed one of my earliest writing influences was my mom. I mean, she, she wrote songs her whole life as, as a hobby, mostly, um, some really great songs, but I think sort of seeing, Throughout my childhood, I would see like typewritten lyrics of her songs strewn around the house. And just as a kid, you're like, you see that and you're like, okay, well, that's just a normal thing that people do. <laughs> they, they write songs. Um, so that was kind of my earliest way in. Um, yeah. And then I think because it was just a solo process for so long, it was really hard for me to, to break out of that. And I, I was also just sour to the idea of co-writing because the initial opportunities to co-write that were presented to me early on were this kind of very uh, curated Nashville process of, mm -hmm. of someone you might not even have ever met before, you know, and, you know, plenty of people do that and write great songs. Great songs come from that method, but it didn't feel great to me to do that. And so, yeah, that's, that's why um, I had mentioned Jed Hughes as being it was, it was the first time that I was sort of set up for a co-write, but I actually knew I had connections to the person and he was friends with the green cards, um, who were some of my earliest mentors growing up in the Austin music scene. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it, just being more open to that over the years, but it's still mostly being my sort of inner world that I was writing about and not, not kind of like looking at th this record, having characters and, and writing, writing songs based around characters that aren't me and not my world. That was kind of a first for me. Yeah. I think it's a really foreign thing to people who aren't musicians, who aren't songwriters, this idea of co-writing, mm -hmm. you know, I think what you were saying, you know, this idea of it being this very personal process, you know, sort of lock yourself away in your bedroom and get these things out. I think that's what most people think of as songwriting, but co-writing sessions are really common and so mm -hmm. much great music has, has come um, from collaborative efforts around songwriting. How do those sessions, you know, take people inside what a session like that might look like? You know, do you show up with ideas already pretty fleshed out or a chord progression or maybe some lyrics? And how do you work with someone else to craft a song? I've experienced all sorts of different um, vibes with it. I mean, you know, with someone like Jed, who I've actually written several songs with over the years, um, our process is kind of maybe what 
like the quintessential co-write process would be if you were kind of thinking more of this professional songwriting um, career that some people have, you know, here in Nashville and in New York and L.A., where you sit down and you kind of both bring ideas and you bounce bounce back and forth. And maybe one person comes in with the initial kind of bulk of the melody and like a little idea. And then you just kind of talk through it and like create a story and like and really have a heart to heart in a way um, for a couple for a few hours. I mean, that's that's one way, like a pretty even back and forth exchange of creative ideas. Um, I've also experienced I had great co-writing sessions with um, some of my earliest ones as well were with Daryl Scott and Tim O'Brien, which were uh, kind yeah, of... Yeah, I've heard of those guys. <laughs> <laughs> That's not a bad songwriting pedigree, girl. That's cool. I know, I know. Two of the best I mean, right were, there. And two of my earliest songwriting heroes. Yeah. Um, they, those, especially my experience writing with Daryl, nothing ever came of the the song that we sort of put together, but we just hung out for like eight hours at his house. And it was just like this spiritual sort of experience, just talking about life. Like sometimes that's what it turns into. You go to write a song and then the song sort of winds up being secondary to like this, this spiritual soul food <laughs> sort of. Um, I want to ha- hang out for eight hours and talk about life with Daryl Scott. <laughs> that sounds amazing. Oh man. Yeah. And so maybe with that kind of thing, it's like, I feel like I probably went home and wrote two or three of my own songs because I was just so inspired and it wasn't, that was sort of the purpose that it, um, that it was for. Um, and then with John writing with John Leventhal, I mean, it was very different because he, the four songs that we wrote together, he had pretty much written all of the music and I was focusing solely on the lyrics. And, and that was like the most separate that those two have ever been for me. And I would, I would say like when I write myself, music is almost always the first thing that comes and lyrics are kind of secondary. And so I think I, because I was able to separate from the music in a way, I was able to think about the lyrics in a deeper way on this album than, than I had previously. Well, it shows such a great record. And I hear that I hear the, the thing you're talking about, sort of this Mm. storytelling. There's a lot of kind of Texas imagery and I know that's, you know, where, where you're from and your roots and, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's got that, storytelling vibe and it's very you and it's very personal but it also sort of takes you on a a relatable journey that's not just tied to you it's sort of Mm -hmm. something bigger that we can all grab onto I think it's a really a big success that way and I would urge you guys to to check it out um take us inside the process of once you're in the studio I think the idea of producing is kind of shrouded in mystery. And I know like songwriting, it takes on a lot of different forms and a producer Mm -hmm. can bring a lot of different things to the session. And it always, um, when I'm producing young bands, it always requires something different. You know, they have their Mm -hmm. strengths, they have their weaknesses, there are those areas that they can help you. Once you were in the studio, what was that process like? What did 
John Leventhal bring to the music and, and how did the sessions unfold? It was, it was so fun. I mean, I've, as I mentioned before, um, you know, when I worked with, it, it helps to sort of um, contrast it with my process with Gary, just because I find it interesting that there are so many ways to go about producing. Um, you know, when I worked with Gary, largely our process was I would go into the tracking room and lay down my part. And then we would think like who, what, what instruments would be cool on this? Like who would be great to have on this track? Whose vocal texture could we have on this track and like call all of those people. And, and it would just be a series of overdubs from that point on, um, with a lot of different people with it. There was always, there was also a very kind of perfectionist approach, um, working with Gary where it, it was very kind of, he, he's almost like famous for this vocal, this vocal tone with like Alison Krauss and Dolly Parton and, um, you know, this very pristine sort of, okay, now I'm stepping up to the mic and this is, I'm going to be, this is the vocal track and we're going to, now it's time, mm -hmm. you know, um, working with John was the opposite of that. I mean, I, for, I've joked with people like for most of the beginning of the recording process, I thought we were just making demos. Um, and I would say like 98% of what I thought were going to be demos, like wound up being on the record. And so you literally, you weren't going into the, the process. You weren't hitting record with the knowledge that this was the actual thing. Not really. I mean, like the way he has his studio set up, it's we I never even stepped into a tracking room, really. We he has his mics just sort of everything is plugged in and ready to go at his um, computer and kind of like he has the vocal mic with a chair. That's the only real sort of you go and you sit in the vocal chair where he has his special vocal mic. Um, and. But otherwise, I mean, I would just be sort of, we'd be sitting and we'd be talking and I'd play through something and he would just be like, oh, that, I'm just going to record and play it, play it. You know, it's very unprecious. Hmm. Um, okay, go, go record a double to your vocal. Go, go record a harmony to your vocal just so we can hear it. Just so we can kind of like, you know, get an idea. And, and then we would listen back and we'd be like, well, why? I think maybe initially I thought, okay, well, I'm just laying down my, a harmony to myself that somebody else will eventually replace. And then when we would listen back and be really happy with how it was sounding, we were both kind of like, well, why would we replace that? <laughs> you know, just, okay, just for cool. the sake of having someone's name on the record or, or you know, if, if we're loving how it's sounding and we're loving the textures that we're getting just with the two of us, let's roll with it. And so that was, it was kind of like a process of discovery cool. for both of us in that way. And like you said, you know, when you work with young bands, it's always different. And I'm sure John would probably say the same thing, like different projects require different types of production, yeah. but it was really just like kind of rolling, rolling with the punches and, and recording uh, in a very kind of low key way okay. uh, throughout the process. Okay. So, do you feel like that sort of took you in the direction of more kind of raw performances and sort of away from this idea of 
perfection because that's such a tricky thing with the studio. You know, the possibilities are absolutely endless and mm-hmm. you can really take it so many ways. But what influence do you think that had on on the music? I mean, I think the it it wound up shifting the focus to the songs need to be great. <laughs> you know, like that's if I would have gotten hung up on performance perfection things in the past, I might have overlooked some aspect of the song that might have made sense to me, but maybe wouldn't make sense to the listener. Um, sure. And was he was and, he pushing you in that direction, saying like, this has the thing, like why would we go in and change it and sort of moving you away from that ideal of perfection and pristine recording and it sounds like just more in in the direction of just kind of honoring this song and bringing it to life and kind of not overcooking it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He definitely pushed me in that direction. And I think a lot of that is because he says uh, of him, of his own musicianship, he says that he feels like his best ideas come at the, at the very beginning. And so that's kind of why he's crafted this way of recording, being sort of set up, just like swing a mic around in front of a guitar, plug into an amp, like his bass is plugged in, like, because he'll have these very quick musical ideas and he wants to just sort of capture them, like throwing paint at a canvas and then, and then going back and tweaking, but being able to actually capture those initial ideas. So, so when you say at the beginning, you mean like those early performances of something mm-hmm. can oftentimes be the most moving. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Cause you're not, you're not in your head about it. Um, and I, I, yeah, I mean, it always goes back to the song. Like I, I just consistently noticed that I was more focused this time around on the song being great as opposed to my performance of it. And then I think as a result, my performance wound up being better because I wasn't trying to achieve this, you know, and of course that comes with I think that's come with time and that's come with just being it being my fifth record and being more comfortable in the studio and kind of having more time under my belt uh, to be able to sort of let go of some of those perfectionist things. I think you I had to go through that process to be able to now kind of quickly have have this more raw sort of quick swift yeah. process in the studio if that makes sense yeah it does and it's it's something again i think that people who haven't made records or written songs you know they they don't necessarily understand that delicate balance between what we perceive in our own music which can oftentimes lead us down that road of perfection and polishing things when um actually the things that relate to listeners are things that we might not be as focused on in the studio, those more raw elements of the song, capturing something the first time it comes out. Sometimes there's the most meaning in that. And it sounds like, Mm -hmm. sounds like you guys took that approach and it, it shows the songs are all, they're just, they're just strong songwriting wise, performance wise, and, and very real and very honest. The album as a whole is such a cool journey. I love the song Orange and Blue. In the shadow of the cypress tree I stumbled in its tangled roots 
Surrounded by the trees, forgotten leaves My knees were bloodied, hands were bruised While I was down upon the muddy ground I dug my hands into the earth I think I found it now And nothing else will do A heart that burns so true Burning orange and blue Such a good one. What's t- Tell Thank us about you. that song. You know, what's the... Um, I the the chorus. I think I found it now, and nothing else will do. A heart that burns so true, burning orange and blue. What's the what's the meaning of that? Uh, it's. I mean, this song really felt. The lyrics came to me at almost as like a dream. I, I mean, it really. So this is a perfect example of the process that I was talking about, where John wrote the music and I wrote the lyrics and maybe even of the four songs that we wrote together, this was the most separate of, of those two things. He, to the point that he had actually, I know that he said it was an idea that he started on guitar. Um, but then he moved it over to the piano and he had the track as it sounds on the record with kind of this piano trio, piano, upright bass and drums. He had most of that, recorded already. I mean, and and it wasn't in the, we obviously like shifted the form a little bit, Mm -hmm. but kind of like the initial verse chorus thing, um, was recorded and sounded awesome. Like it didn't, it didn't sound like a demo. It sounded like a finished record and he played it for me. And I just, it's almost like this inexplicable, you know, as a songwriter, you're, I'm, I'm always gathering ideas and I'm always, um, making little voice memos of melodic ideas. I'm taking notes. I keep notes on my phone of lyric ideas. And most of the time you're sort of piecing those things together. Um, this was just like truly one of those special rare experiences where it was like, as soon as he played me that piano melody, I visualized the Cypress Cypress Creek, which runs through the middle of Wimberley in Texas, my hometown. And, and it was just like this dream. And so I think I I love the idea of that chorus sort of meaning whatever it needs to mean to anyone. And I tried to sort of keep it, keep it a little vague because of that. I, I, I just wanted it to be this universal love song, I guess, but it could be, it's not necessarily for a person. It could be for a land or a place. And uh, just, I I wanted to, to keep that open-ended. Cool. So are you always writing songs? Are you always kind of collecting ideas and putting things down, whether they're musical or lyrical for possible sort of like, you know, reconfiguring or drawing from those ideas? Is that a process that's just always ongoing for you? Yes and no. I mean, I definitely feel like I work creatively kind of in a cyclical way. Um, like often when I'll finish a record and just, you know, you're, you're pouring over all the ideas for maybe a year or or two, even kind of leading up to a, a project to come out. I often find that when that 
does come out, I'm sort of, I need to create space in my brain um, to actually not have creative output for a little while. Okay. Um, just just it, mostly in the sense of, okay, I got to live some more life to, to have something new sure, to write about. Sure. Um, or or not necessarily, there's always things to write about, but, but maybe to like have a different perspective, a uh, different place to sort of write from. Um, and so that actually was funny at the beginning of, because we finished this record in February and then the pandemic hit. It, initially, everyone was asking me like in March and April and May, like, oh, are, you must just be writing all the time with this this time at home and nothing to do. And it was actually no, because I feel like I had just had that big output of creative energy and I was sort of taking the chance to, to step away from that. But now, like it, the cycle's coming back around sure. and I've noticed even in the last month, um, I sort of have been getting into my usual, the way that it sort of seems to go, which is all just, you know, I, I try to have all my instruments out in the house, um, not in their cases. <laughs> That's like Tim O'Brien actually taught me that when I was very little, he was like, when you get home from tour, take your instrument out of your case because you're not, it's amazing. Like how, if it's in the case, you might not play it as much as if it's just sitting on the couch. So it's as simple um, as just having things out and, and when inspiration yeah. strikes, okay, cool. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so that's sort of my, my general process, having all the instruments out and about and kind of picking them up and recording, yeah, like I said, usually I, I tend to record melodic ideas and write down lyric ideas separately of each other. Okay. And and then after a few months of kind of collecting those two things separately of each other, then maybe listening back through all of the ideas, reading back through the ideas and kind of then trying to actually craft songs from those ideas. And do the musical parts usually come first and then the lyrics come later? Generally, okay. for me, that's that's how it goes. Okay. And so as far as this record goes, at what point, I know you said that you guys had some heavy collaboration on the writing, but as far as the, the sonic texture of this album is, is awesome. It's just really, it's different from your previous records. I mean, obviously there are a lot of common threads, but like you said, first record with drums. And mm -hmm. I'm wondering, you know, at what point during the process are you starting to think, okay, this is what I want this to sound like. These are the instruments that I want to use to bring this to life. Does that happen early on or does that not happen until you hit the studio? That didn't happen until I hit the studio okay. with, with this record. I mean, other than the fact that part of why I picked John Leventhal to work with is because I, I generally like the textures that he brings to the table as a producer. I mean, mostly I would say his work with Sean Colvin was like predominantly the reason that I wanted to work with him. I I'm obsessed with the records that he's made with her. Mm -hmm. Love them so much. Love his guitar tone. Um, but honestly, I think I was, I didn't even realize the extent to which he played everything in the studio. I, I was sort of imagining like, okay, he's going to play most of the guitar. I'll play my stuff. And then, you know, he'll kind of bring in some other people, but it, um, it almost surprised me how, how much he played, but it was it truthfully, when he went in 
like again thought thought we were making a demo for this one song like one of the first songs that we started tracking and he went into his drum room and just laid down a quick you know as he said just for us to hear just for us to hear <laughs> he tricked you into I, making a yeah, great record <laughs> <laughs> and that's man like that's kind of how it went um and and again like i purposefully didn't get hung up on things that I wanted this time around because I wanted to be open for that process. I wanted, you know, it's funny, one of our actually, and I'm so happy with how it ended up. I, I actually think that I went into this record wanting less mandolin, um, in general, because I haven't, I mean, I've, I play my octave mandolin all the time and I write on my octave mandolin, but in terms of my mandolin, I've sort of moved for whatever reason, I mean, just kind of in a songwriting sense, I guess, moved away from writing songs on, on the mandolin. That's, it's not really something I've ever done, but I just wasn't hearing it in my head. And John was really good about sort of bringing me back to like when we would sort of get carried away with experimenting with drums and bass and things and doubled vocals that I hadn't really recorded my vocals that way before. He had a really good way of saying like, let's not forget who you are, you know, let's not forget like the sound of the mandolin, like is a part of your sound. And like, let's, I think he was super conscious about that. Like wanting to bring in those sonic elements to like, not as he said, I don't want this to sound like my record. I want it to sound like your record. And, um, so sometimes the mandolin was like the tool that he felt sort of made that possible. Yeah, I think that's probably what most people associate you with instrumentally. I know. <clears throat> you remember when you sat in with the string dusters, we played that Gnarls Barkley song at the station yeah. in yeah. ages ago. <laughs> and I remember, you know, that was that was when you were starting to step out and and um mandolin was was your thing all through those early mm-hmm. years, right? Yeah, I mean, that's before songwriting, really. I mean, that's really what I got obsessed with. You know, as a 10-year-old kid, I was just, I mean, I always sang. Like, singing was something I did from the time that I was a little kid, and I was in choirs, and um, that was just something that I did. But it wasn't until I started playing mandolin that I really took ownership over, like, oh, I'm a musician now yeah. and I'm obsessed with the mandolin. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's a great segue to kind of getting into some bluegrass. And I loved when I saw that you were giving the IBMA keynote this year. And, you know, it was obviously a strange year for IBMA because, you know, and I loved what you said in the keynote reminiscing about the Galt house, you know. I, I, <laughs> I mean, we do the same thing, you know. It's like... The golden age of IBMA. And I do think that IBMA has had a really powerful resurgence. And I think Mm -hmm. that the organization is in really good hands. And I think they have a great focus that connects to the message that you were really speaking about in your talk, which is, and I loved what you said, that bluegrass can be considered more a tradition than a genre. And, mm-hmm. th- and this idea that a tradition is just a starting place. A, right. a tradition is this collection of amazing influences and voices that can sort of set us off in any number of directions. And the more right. that we 
embrace that communal aspect of things, you know, that's going to be what keeps bluegrass alive. But I remember, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, back in the day, the Galt house was like, you couldn't miss it. You know, <laughs> and, and I remember driving down when I was like in college and then moving to Nashville and Critter and I driving to the Galt house and it was like six guys in a room stay up all night. <laughs> and it's awesome to see the, the relevance of IBMA, I think. Wouldn't you agree? It's, it's, it's like having a, yes. a resurgence in not only the way that it embraces all these forward thinking forms of acoustic music and bluegrass, but also it's like the can't miss event, you know, it's the breeding ground for, that was where we all met. That's where I first met Travis. That's where I first met Jeremy. And how old were you when you were going to those, those early IBMAs? Well, so that, the, the Galt House one that I talked about in the speech was my first IBMA and I was 12 years old. And that was the last one at the Galt House okay. before it moved to Nashville. So I, I feel lucky, lucky that I, I got one in yeah, <laughs> at the Galt House before <laughs> it changed. Yeah. <laughs> so was, was that a total shocker to you to get asked to give the keynote? That's such a, that's such a cool thing. It was a total shocker. I mean, I think especially because it, it came after this record was released, which I, you know, I kind of think this record is my least bluegrassy elements, um, sort of recording that, that I've made. Um, and you know, that made me like, I, I was very surprised because I truthfully, like since my first record, and I said this in the speech, like I, at this point, I don't consider myself to be a bluegrass musician in the music that I record mm -hmm. on my albums. You know, I, I, that's the world that I started in and it's the world that I came from and love so dearly. And, you know, occasionally get to do, even with I'm with her, I feel like we played more actual music that can like bluegrass music mm -hmm. and covering toy heart and Jerusalem moan and, and bluegrass songs. Um, whereas in my own shows and my own albums, like I just don't feel like I've been doing that for a long time. So it, it really meant, I think it says a lot about the organization right now. And, you know, the, the people that are Paul Schiminger and just everyone over there right now, having, making the decision to choose someone like me, who's not necessarily actively putting out bluegrass records, but I, I do have so much history with that world. And, and I was so, I mean, I was deeply honored because I, I respect that world so much and it truly shaped the musician that I've become. Yeah. And I, I couldn't agree more. I think you were such a great choice. And I think you're a great example of that thing that you talked about in your keynote, which is, you know, you didn't discover bluegrass from hearing Bill Monroe. I think Hot Rise, right, was your real mm -hmm. real intro. And this yeah. is what's happening these days is people are hearing Hot Rise or even more contemporary things like hearing your music or hearing, you know, any of the sort of like, uh, you know, the, the world that we're a part of with Leftover mm -hmm. Salmon and Billy Strings. And then these are the things that are leading them back to this amazing well of music. And that was how it worked for me. I mean, when I got my first banjo, I didn't have a clue what bluegrass was. Oh, and yeah. I was listening to the Flectone. Uh -huh. And then eventually I discovered Earl Scruggs. And if that's the result of keeping an open-minded approach 
and embracing all of these different things that are clearly related to bluegrass, but not necessarily dyed in the wool, that's the mm -hmm. stuff that's going to lead people back to the roots of the music. And it's just hard to explain to people how much is there. They hear trad bluegrass and they think it's a simple form of music and mm -hmm. it's deceptively complex. I mean, I bet you, right. I'm sure you would agree. You could work a lifetime on these, you know, simple traditional songs or seemingly simple, but there's so much soul there. There's so much cultural relevance and mm -hmm. it's amazing to see the resurgence. I mean, even in the last, you know, since we've been around as a band, I remember I gave the keynote in 2011. Oh, amazing. Yeah. And I was, that was the most nervous I had ever been <laughs> in my freaking life because, you know, the, 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 I, I had written a, um, a piece on my blog that I called the Bluegrass Manifesto. And it was just this, 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 an early iteration of a message that was not even my own. It was just like, until bluegrass people who do have a tendency to be kind of judgmental about the music and there's a lot of mm -hmm. increased ownership that comes with the amount of fans that also play the music. And so they're just invested. And, yeah. and that breeds a lot of opinions about this is bluegrass or this isn't. And right. I remember I put a slide up on, I had like a PowerPoint going and it showed like the economics of a yonder show at Red Rocks. 10,000 people, $40 a ticket. It's like more than most bluegrass bands make in a year. Yeah. But the message was like, there's a lot going on in terms of young people really getting into this music and it really mm -hmm. would be a good thing for the organization to embrace that movement mm -hmm. in the name of keeping all of that amazing traditional stuff alive and that was a lot of what i heard in your talk too and i think that's i think that's such a good place for them to be and i feel like it's finally coming around you know yeah it, it was funny to to write the speech in that sense because i in a way, I don't think that there needs to be this massive change because I think I truthfully feel like they've been doing such a good job. And in, in the last few years, like kind of it seems like since they moved to Raleigh, just this For sure. this um, excitement and this this feeling that it it's got this freshness and there is more inclusion and all of those things, you know, so I wasn't I, I wanted to basically write the speech to sort of say, like, let's keep this going, you know, yeah. it's on the right track. And if we can all sort of gather around this idea that we, ha we will always be conscious of preserving our reverence for what came before, but also being open-minded to what is still to come. And I love what you say too, about just the lesson, the musical integrity of bluegrass mm -hmm. is so high, you know? Oh, yeah. And that's like, the calling card. And that's, that's something that we should all be really proud of. That's something that we should let that influence our music. And I think in a lot of cases, it, it really does. And ultimately, mm -hmm. you know, the more open minded, the music community at large, I mean, it, IBMA, International Bluegrass Music Association, that's one part of it. But that will only do a service to all the music, you know, if all anyone ever did was just play flat and scrug songs over and over that's when you start to get into like genres like classical and the 
the blues that have kind of this identity crisis where they need younger artists to come in right. and reinvent them. And, you know, that's, that's to me that you fall squarely in that category. And, you know, I think that I'm sure there will be people who listen to your music and that becomes their gateway, you mm -hmm. know, to something, to something more bluegrassy. Yeah. I mean, like you, sometimes you have to have a way in <laughs> before you can get really deep into something. And, um, man, like I remember seeing you guys at maybe, maybe not that first one at the Galt house, but I, I remember when it moved to Nashville, seeing you guys play a showcase, um, and being blown away. And because, because you were younger and because you were kind of, ha I could tell there were these more modern influences it caught my attention and it made me really fired up about it. And yeah, that it, it, you have to like have room for that, um, to be able, you know, and then I started going back into the history, right. like from there, but I might not have done that if, if there wasn't that, um, exciting newness to it. Yeah. Well, bluegrass is lucky to have you, Sarah, uh, as an ambassador <laughs> and, um, it's been such an honor having you on the podcast today and just seeing your face and catching up. It's, yeah. as you said earlier, it's, it's great to see a friend right now. And it's been so awesome watching your career just unfold and blossom. And I love, love the music that you're putting out and I love this new record. And I can't say enough good things about, about your whole catalog. So everyone go check out Aww. Sarah Jarose and, I can't wait until we can get out there and play some music again. I know, I know. It's going to be so glorious when it finally happens. Can you believe what that is going to be like? I oh, mean, man. The appetite is going to be through the roof. And who knows? Yeah. Maybe, it'll, maybe it'll happen sooner, sooner than we think. And, you know, it's good to hear that in the meantime, you're keeping busy. And I think it's awesome that great new music is coming out you know, even in this time when, you know, so many of us, the, the way our careers go is like you put out a record and you go and tour, but you know, mm -hmm. we can't get out and tour right now, but the world still needs great music and, you yep. know, world on the ground, I'm sure is, is making, making a lot of people happy. So great work. Aww. Yeah. Thank you so yeah. much. It's so fun to chat and catch up. Yeah. Thanks for joining me today. And I really hope that we can hang and jam and have a hug sooner rather than later. <laughs> I can't wait for that. All right. Thanks, Sarah. I'll talk to you soon. Awesome. All right. Thank see you. Ya. Bye. All right. That's going to do it for episode 12 of the podcast. Huge thanks to all of you for tuning in. Thanks to Sarah, my amazing guest today. And special thanks to everyone who got involved in the conversation about the evolution of music over the last year via social media. Really appreciate all your guys' responses. I learned a ton. And if you'd like to get in on the conversation and you're not already, just look for me on Twitter, Instagram. I'm easy to find. Inside the Musician's Brain is brought to you by Osiris Media and Americana Vibes. Stay tuned for the next episode where I sit down with my friend Otil Burbridge. You will not believe the crazy, interesting places that this conversation goes. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Chris Pandolfi, and I'll see you next time.
From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. Seriously, make it stop. Thankfully, there's one company out there that's giving you a much-needed break. It's Mint Mobile. As the first company to sell premium wireless service online only, Mint Mobile lets you order from home and save a ton with phone plans starting at just $15 a month. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. To get your new wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month and get the plan shipped to your door for free, go to mintmobile.com switch. That's mintmobile.com switch. What is a city without its music? The legacy of the New York Philharmonic is incredible. Nearly two centuries of history. That's a lot of music and a lot of stories. I was sitting on stage for the very first time thinking... I can't quite believe this is happening. Join me, Jamie Bernstein, as we explore the history of the New York Philharmonic. It's the NY Phil story made in New York, a podcast about a city, its people, and their orchestra. Listen wherever you get podcasts. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and, in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com.